0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Putting bets on the future generally isn't a good idea. But if it was 1939 and you were betting on the outcome of the war in Europe, there's a very good chance you would have made the wrong bet.
1: That's kind of one of the fun things about going back in history and really trying to understand the history of science or technology or even, you know, in that case, warfare is we know how that played out. We've all seen the movies. So we just assume it was sort of obvious from the beginning. But it wasn't. Safi Bakal is a
0: scientist, a former biotech CEO, and the author of the book Moonshots, how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases, and transform industries.
1: If you were living in the United States in January of 1939, here's what it would have looked like. The Germans had just developed these submarines called U-boats, which looked ready to strangle the Atlantic. And in fact, they did. For the first four years, they were just destroying Allied ships, faster than the Allies could build them. Two, the Germans had these planes the German, in the German Luftwaffe, the Air Force, which outclassed any plane in any Allied you know, army. And they looked ready to just wipe Europe away. And that's exactly what happened. In the first, in, in a matter of weeks or a few months, Germany just dominated Western Europe.
0: And if that wasn't bad enough, assuming you didn't want the Nazis to take over the world, In early 1939, German scientists, who historically had been several steps ahead of American scientists, they came up with a new idea, nuclear fission.
1: And that put Hitler within reach of the most dangerous weapon ever created by man. So you had U-boats to dominate the oceans, you had the planes to dominate the sky, and then you had Hitler close to the atomic weapons. So absolutely, you would have been right to bet on Nazi Germany.
0: But of course, we all know that would have been a terrible bet to make. The wrong bet. Bacall says the reason for the change in fortunes, the reason why the side that seemed to have the science and technology squarely on its side didn't end up winning, is that America took a chance on some crazy ideas. Ideas that, in retrospect, seem brilliant, but at the time seemed
1: nuts. The vast majority of ideas, people are like, eh, what's so big about this? It's never going to work. Whether it was, you know, social networks or even personal computers or even... The transistor, you know, they didn't quite know what to do with it. People working on it were written off as crazy. The telephone, people were written off, oh, this is not going to do anything. People working on that is crazy. Most of the big ideas, whether it is science or the ones that transform industries, people dismiss them right then and there, and their are champions. They say, yeah, oh, this guy's off his rockers. It's only in hindsight that we say, oh, must have been a brilliant idea, and that's kind of part of the purpose ...of what I'm writing about is to help people nurture those crazy ideas right now.
0: Bacall argues that we think a lot about moonshots, the notion that we're going to get together to accomplish a grand idea, whether it was reaching the moon in the 1960s or curing cancer now. But when most great ideas come along, their inventors are treated more like crazy people than like heroes. Their enterprises seem more like loon shots than like moonshots... Which brings us back to World War II and an idea that at one point seemed like it was headed nowhere fast, radar, which two engineers in the Navy had played around with in
1: the early 1920s. And they were just trying to test radio communication at sea, and they'd set up a receiver on one edge of the Potomac River and a transmitter on the other edge, and they just noticed that when a ship passed by, they would get this radio interference and like, oh, my God.
0: So like this indication that like, oh, there's a ship there. Yes. Oh, my
1: God. We just discovered a new way not only of communicating by radio at sea, which is what they were working on, but serendipitously, holy cow, we can now see stuff at night. We could see ships passing through. That's fantastic. And then they presented their idea to their bosses. And like with every early stage idea, there are dozens of reasons why it could never work. And that's why their loon shots because mm-hmm. people say, oh, here's the 15 th- reasons that could never work. You know, not enough power, not enough energy, you can never set this up, blah, blah, blah. And they were written off as nuts and nothing happened for 10 years.
0: What the American side needed as it was gearing up for war was someone to champion scientific ideas that seemed a little bit fringe, maybe even undoable. And it got that champion. His name was Vannevar Bush. Dean of the School of Engineering at MIT, someone brilliant at understanding organizations, and a risk taker.
1: And he knew, because of all the scientists fleeing Hitler and Nazi, especially the Jewish scientists fleeing Hitler and Nazi Germany, that Germany was far ahead in science and technology. And he decided to quit his job, move to Washington, even though the president of MIT said, "Listen, we need you. I'm going to resign and make you president instead." He said, "No." The country is facing a national crisis and I'm needed in Washington. And he talked his way into a meeting with FDR, President Franklin Roosevelt, and he said it was a 10-minute meeting. And that 10-minute meeting probably changed the course of the war more than anything else. He handed FDR a single sheet of paper with three small paragraphs in the middle, and he said there's a war coming and we're going to lose that war. It's going to be a technology-driven war, and the U.S. Army and the Navy are too far behind, and they'll never catch up in time. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to authorize a new group in the federal government that will report directly to me, and I will report only to you, and I will mobilize the nation's scientists for war.
0: It's amazing that he's got one page. Like, here we're talking about the world on the brink, right? And he's got one page that he hands to FDR, and he's like, here's the plan. Um, Do you have any idea why the president was like, okay, let's do that?
1: Well, if— FDR was his own, you know, had his own political style and he liked the idea of having different groups pursuing different things that he kind of oversaw. And so that fit with his own approach. But he also understood, he was a big naval person. He also understood how slow large groups are. And Bush made a very strong case because Bush Bush wasn't just some wacko scientist. He'd been working with the Navy since the first world war. So one of the reasons Bush was successful when so many people had failed before him. So many scientists had seen the same red flag. Bush respected the military. And many scientists or any kind of creative, they tend to not respect the soldiers that need to get the job done. They love their new ideas and their fancy new projects, but they miss the fact that just having a new idea or a new project gets you from your goal line to your five-yard line. To get to the rest of the, the other side of the field, the other 95 yards, you need the people who turn those ideas into products and deliver them to customers and on time, on budget, on spec, Bush respected both the artist and the soldiers, the crazy scientists and the people that need to manufacture and get them done. And that's one of the reasons he was so successful.
0: So how did, his, how did the technology that he then presided over, un, un, right underneath the president, th- but this group that he was like, I'm in charge here of this sort of technology group, how did that technology change the war?
1: So for the first four years of the war, U-boats were sinking Allied ships. They were sinking more tonnage every month than the Allies could build. And it was getting to be the most dangerous threat of the war. And Hitler understood by that point that this is how he would win the war. And Churchill and Roosevelt understood that the Battle of the Atlantic, where the U-boats were sinking all the Allied ships, was the critical battle of the war because England was running out of oil. England was the only country left in Western Europe fighting, and they were down to three months of oil reserves.
0: And they were also, they were low on food, right? I mean, they were rationed. Food, they, did, they just ration. couldn't get things in.
1: That's right. And, you know, what do tanks run on, what do planes run on, what do trucks run on? You need oil. And so no oil, no war, end of Europe. Despite a little bit of code-breaking success in 1941 or forty two, the ships being sunk by U-boats was growing every single year from you know 1 million to 4 2 million to 4 million to 8 million by 1942 in terms of tonnage of shipping sunk until March of 1943 when the first liberator bombers those are these kind of long range planes started patrolling the Atlantic with two technologies from bush's group the first one was microwave radar that allowed those planes to suddenly see the U-boats. Because the U-boats would just hide deep in the ocean and then they would surface in a wolf pack and sink whatever convoy of ships was And then they'd go back down. But they needed to come up to recharge. So the Allies just couldn't see them in time and had no defense. Hmm. So when the planes started patrolling, all of a sudden, they just started lighting up. The second technology was kind of a forerunner of GPS, which allowed the ships to signal the planes where they needed to go and the planes could just rush over. So all of a sudden... The first liberated bombers went out in the middle of March 1943. Within four weeks, they'd sunk one-third of the German U-boat arsenal. And then eight weeks later, on May 20th, 1943, the head of the German Navy sent out a radio message to all of the U-boats in the Atlantic. The Battle of the Atlantic is lost. Withdraw. And then the lanes were cleared to resupply Europe and for an Allied invasion.
0: After the war, uh, Vannevar Bush wrote a report that had a big impact, made a big splash. What was it about and how do you think what he had done during the war had like dominoes for what would come after World War II?
1: Well, towards the end of the war in in, uh, late 1944, when it became clear that the Allied forces would win and that Hitler would lose, FDR turned to Bush and said, well, what's going to happen to science and technology at the end of this war. I mean, you've developed this amazing system for innovating in science and technology enormously fast. And Bush said, well, it's going to fall flat on its face. We're just going to go back to where we were before. And so FDR says, I'd like you to write a report to capture what it was that you did in your system and how we can use that in times of peace. And so that became known as the Bush Report, Endless Frontier, And that report laid the architecture for the U.S.'s national system for supporting science and technology. That's the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, DARPA inside the military. And that gave us the Internet, personal computers, even the transistor. And so many of the technologies that we now take for granted that helped drive trillions of dollars of American economic growth after the war ultimately sprang from the system that Bush inspired.
0: When you think about what was accomplished during World War II, there is this – there was, to some extent, an embrace ultimately of some seemingly crazy ideas. Um, You have talked about this notion of how big groups of people, even well-meaning people, even smart people, can kill great ideas. Why is that?
1: People talk so much about culture. But underlying culture, which is the patterns of behavior you see on the surface, is structure. That's what's underneath the surface that can be driving culture. And the problem is when people focus so much on culture, they miss the structure. And that can lead to disaster, like killing you no know, important new ideas, whether it was radar or important new drugs for cancer that stayed buried inside, deep inside companies. And changing Culture is very hard. I mean, putting people in a room and singing Kumbaya and holding hands doesn't work very well. But changing structure can be much easier. Here's what I mean by that. If you reward people in groups by rank, base salary, you get promoted from whatever, associate to vice president to senior vice president and so forth.
0: Which is how most
1: companies work, right? Right. If most of the incentives are associated with rank – it's going to create a very political culture because everyone's fighting to climb up the ladder. And how do you climb up the ladder? Well, you toot your own horn and you try to stab other people in the back. You shoot down their ideas, including their crazy loon shots. And it's very easy to shoot them down because those early stage ideas always come covered in flaws and reasons that could never work. By celebrating rank and rewarding rank, which is an aspect of structure, you create a pattern of behavior, which is a very political culture. If, on the other hand, you celebrate and you reward teams who unite around risky new ideas and the success of those ideas, you'll create a very innovative culture. You don't pay based on rank. You pay based on the success of projects, how much teams come together and how their risky new ideas do. That's much harder to do in terms of designing those kinds of programs. But by changing structure that way, you create a very innovative culture. So underneath political culture and innovative culture, you have two very different elements of structure. Hmm.
0: So let's hold the conversation here. And in a minute, I'm going to come back with author Safi Bakal to talk more about how we can encourage crazy ideas, like, for example, cholesterol-lowering drugs, which were almost never made. Plus, we're going to look at why China and the Arab world dominated math and science for a 1,000 years, and then how that changed. Let us know your thoughts about this conversation. We're on Twitter at iHubRadio. You can also email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. 20th century, lots of research started being done on heart disease and why so many Americans had it. In the 1960s, two biochemists won the Nobel Prize for explaining how something called cholesterol worked. Akira Endo was around 30 when that Nobel Prize was given out, and the work that he would do
1: on cholesterol would, not to be hyperbolic here, it would change the world. And the first time people got Excited about the idea of lowering cholesterol when they first identified in the Framingham study in the 50s that cholesterol was associated with more heart attacks and maybe we should lower cholesterol. He started working on an idea for coming up with a new drug to lower cholesterol.
0: That's Safi Bakal, author of the book Moonshots, how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases and transform industries. And he's talking about Akira Endo's dream, which quickly was quashed, kind of.
1: Then, about a few years after he started, all these dietary trials of lowering cholesterol failed. And so everybody said, oh, you can't lower cholesterol. Duh, every cell in your body has cholesterol. Taking a drug into your body that targets every cell is insane. You're just going to create a horribly toxic poison. So stop working on it.
0: Bacall, who used to run a biotech company, says that the nature of breakthrough science is that Too often, it's initially viewed as nuts. Back when he was in biotech, Bacall was feeling kind of down one night after work. And sitting near him was a British scientist named James Black, who, not incidentally, had won the Nobel Prize for Medicine
1: in the 1980s. He was uh, advising us, a group of uh, biologists and chemists at our company. And one day late at night, I was feeling kind of depressed because... A project hadn't worked in the lab, and I was I was telling him. And remember, he's in his eighties. And this was probably like twelve hours of like science presentation, and I just wanted to crawl home and go to bed. And he's like, "No, you you stay, Safa. You stay. Have another scotch with me." Everybody else went home, oh, and I was, you know, uh, we were just talking. I was telling him how I was kind of depressed about this project, and he, That's when he leaned over and he patted my knee and he said, "Oh my boy, it's not a good drug unless it's been killed three times." And he told me his stories with all of his things that in retrospect and hindsight with revisionist history, it's like, oh, of course it's obvious there's this, you know, channel on the surface of a cell, so we just design a drug to block that channel and we're done. Bingo. It should take like 15 seconds, right? No, that's not, obviously that's not how it works. There's many false paths and many people telling you it never works. Which brings us back to statins,
0: drugs to lower cholesterol, which scientist Akira Endo thought were a great idea, but not a lot of other people did. In fact, there was concern that in trying to lower
1: cholesterol, you'd just poison people. But Endo didn't give up. Then he finally found a drug, a couple years of very hard work, that actually seemed to lower production of cholesterol in kind of a targeted way. And he gave it to mice. That's the standard test you do in the laboratory when you're working on a new drug. He gave it to rodent models. Nothing happened. That's the end of almost any product. If nothing happens, then you're done. Much later, people discovered that the statins work by targeting bad cholesterol, which is LDL cholesterol. Turns out mice don't have LDL. They only have the good cholesterol. So, of course, the statins did nothing in mice. Endo just had a sneaking suspicion, so he tried it in another species, which you rarely do, and found that it worked. And then kind of the rest is history. It ended up, probably statins have saved millions of lives. But that's the kind of example of a project get killed many times. And the statins are probably one of the great medical breakthroughs of the 20th century.
0: Let's talk about a culture or a structure that nurtured in some ways loon shots. You tell this story, this is kind of going way back in history here, about why... It is that the West in more recent times has been the scientific pioneer and why China or Arab states, which were so far ahead for so long, like Europe was a backwater for a really long time. Like Baghdad was where it was at, you know, in a lot of ways. Why that changed? Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Okay, that's going – back a little bit yeah, farther and, than World War II. And yeah, 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 exactly.
0: And how that's kind of related sure. to crazy ideas. No,
1: absolutely. And, and that that's one of the reasons I got started on this project is I kept getting stuck with this weird question. I used to give talks on history of science, which is, why does the world speak English? Why did modern science as we know it today begin or really take off in 17th century Western Europe, plus or minus a few years, when... For so many years, for a thousand years, from about five hundred AD to fifteen hundred AD, not a decade or a few years, but a thousand years, China, Islam, and India were so far ahead of Western European nations in terms of technology, in terms of libraries, in terms of medicine. I you mean an example, the, the most widely used medical text in Europe during that period was written by Ibn Sina, an Islamic scholar. And it wasn't just used for seven years or 70 years. It was used for 700 years wow. in Western Europe.
0: That's, that's the lasting power of a book right there. Right.
1: And the, many of the, uh, the Islamic astronomy, the Islamic advances in optics, far exceeded anything in Western Europe from about the 8th or ninth century to the 13th century. China had developed paper and printing about a 1,000 years before Western Europe, the compass, uh, gunpowder. They had the most advanced navies in the world. They had developed, you know, we think of universities as sort of a Western European thing, but they had a class of scholar elites that was graduating one or two million people a year for six, seven hundred years before the first university opened its door in Western Europe. They were far better organized, dominant in the world economy. China and Islam were about 50 percent of the GDP of the world. England during that period was around half a percent. So why England?
0: That's why I said backwater for a really long time, It's just such
1: a puzzling and weird question when you actually go back and look at the history. And that made me think of the film industry. So the film industry has these dominant majors, Columbia, Universal, Paramount, and they develop phenomenal franchises, the next Avengers movie, the next Transformers movie, whatever. The most creative and innovative and surprising movies often come from the sea of tiny little production shops in Hollywood, or my industry, the biotech industry, has these dominant majors, Merck, Pfizer, and Novartis, that develop the next statin drug, the next ulcer drug that they launch globally and bring in billions of sales, but often the most creative, wacky ideas for new drugs that become very important come from this sea of tiny little biotech companies like mine. And so that's the connections. China, Islam, and India were the Merck, Pfizer, and Novartis of their day. They were phenomenal at franchises. They built the Great Wall in China, the Grand Canal in China. There was nothing like that in Western Europe. They built the Taj Mahal, nothing like that in Western Europe. But the crazy little ideas. Here's an example. The idea that the earth goes around the sun, not the other way around. That sounds absurd. Anybody can look up in the sky. Well, you don't want to look directly at the sun. But anybody can look up and see the sun goes around us. Or the stars goes around us every 24 hours. So that's nuts. That idea was crucial in developing the scientific method. Why? Because the scientific method is about undermining authority. I don't need to ask why does lightning happen or why does the earth move the way it does. I don't need to ask divine rulers or religious leaders. Anybody can do an experiment. And if divine rulers and religious leaders could be so wrong about the earth and the sun, what else were they wrong about? So that idea, which was a crazy idea, developed by Copernicus and advanced by Kepler and others over the course of 100 years, it was originally written off for close to 80 or 100 years. Those similar kind of ideas appeared in China, Islam, and India, but were squashed.
0: Really? So in two different parts of the world, people are coming up with these same ideas about – Maybe actually the earth goes around the sun.
1: Well, no, it's, that's actually a debate among historians. Okay. It was absolutely clear in Islamic science, also in Indian science, that the earth can move, that the, it was widely discussed for centuries that the earth might rotate. But those ideas were squashed because they were franchised, the same way radar was squashed in the military or my big fat Greek wedding was killed, you know, rejected by every. Major movie studio. James Bond, when it was first, the idea of a metrosexual British spy, you know, when that was first proposed to the studios in the U.S., are like, that's absurd. No one's going to buy that. Those were all loon shots rejected hmm. by the big majors in the franchises. That's why we had the tiny little film studios or the tiny biotech companies. And so China, Islam, and India were the Merck, Pfizer, and Novartis of their day, the tiny, hundred, you know, hundreds of little nation states of Western Europe were like the hundreds of tiny little biotech companies working on crazy little projects, most of which failed, but a few became incredibly important.
0: Well, you tell this story of this great Chinese astronomer who had brilliant ideas, but when he fell out of favor with um, the leaders in China, he was done, right? He was in retirement. He was in seclusion. That was it. Whereas when the astronomer Tycho Brahe sort of fell out of love with Danish rulers, he just went and found the ruler of some other fiefdom somewhere and they supported him.
1: Right. And so you can compare these two characters. Tycho Brahe, who was the leading astronomer in Western Europe around 1600 or so, who who recruited – he was older. He recruited a young Kepler to help him. And then 500 years earlier, his equivalent in China, five centuries earlier – who had similar concepts of let's just build a careful observatory to measure the positions of the planets because we think there's something weird going on, so let's just measure it and see what's going on. So when Tycho did that, he started to uncover the truth. He started the process of verifying and confirming Copernicus's ideas that the Earth moves, which really changed the world. Five centuries earlier in China... This astronomer who worked for the emperor had the same idea, and then he lost political favor, so the emperor had him imprisoned for most of the rest of his life. That's where one idea gets squashed, and that's how ideas get squashed inside big companies when there's an emperor CEO saying, I don't think that idea is going to be valuable, and then it's dead, and it never comes back. But when you have hundreds of little countries, exactly like you say, Tycho, when he was older, lost favor with the Danish king who just withdrew his funding. That's actually very similar to a lot of small biotech companies. When the board loses confidence, sure. they say, okay, like, you guys are done. done. Yeah,
0: we've spent, we've spent enough money on these
1: yeah. dead-end so, ideas. Exactly, and so then that little group will hunt around until they find more funding, and that's what Tycho did in Western Europe. The Danish king had given him this island and the money to fund the best observatory, which really made the breakthroughs to prove that the Earth moves and that all these thousands of years of dogma were incorrect. Well, the Danish king withdrew his funding, and Tycho was, had nothing he could do. So he hunted around until he found another crazy king who would actually support him, and that was Rudolf II in Prague. And so he moved his observatory there, and that's where he brought Kepler, and that's where Kepler made the measurements that essentially proved that Copernicus was correct.
0: So when you look around today and you've you've seen industry from the inside, do you feel like we're living at a time where these crazy ideas, these loon shots are being nurtured? Are they mostly being, you know, quashed? Like, what's happening?
1: Well, I think the U.S. has done a terrific job. And in fact, Vannevar Bush and his report that launched the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health really drove so much economic growth. The biotech industry came out of that. The internet came out of that. A lot of the personal computer technology came out of that. And that drove an enormous amount of economic growth. The problem is that other countries have figured that out. And the biggest threat for the United States right now is China, uh, which is rapidly creeping up on the U.S. And they figured out this lesson. And that's what we had in the U.S. The NSF, invested in all these crazy ideas of scientists and universities which ultimately became the biotech industry which is why the US still to this day leads the world in biotechnology same thing with the internet same thing with GPS same thing with so many you know today that might be you know nuclear fusion reactors things that people say i don't know if that's ever going to work but no one company has the resources to so that's worked very good for 50 60 70 years But now other countries have figured that out just at the same time that we have forces that want to decrease our investment. Decrease our investment not only in investing in the crazy ideas, but when FDR and Vannevar Bush got together in 1944 and 1945 and shaped the future, they said not only is it about investing in these ideas, it's about in training the next generation of youth. That's equally important because these are going to be our people who will create the ideas that will drive the economy, and who's going to educate them. So the problem is we're decreasing that investment just as it's becoming more and more critical and other countries have figured out that's the key to success, number one. And what's even more crazy is that our our universities are still the leading universities in the world, but when they send their students here and we give them undergrad or graduate degree or we give them PhDs, we send them back. Why are we sending them back? We should just be stapling a green card to the back of every PhD. Of course we want them. We're investing in this. We want those people here to drive the future amazing technologies. What's going to be next after biotech? What's going to be next AI? What's going to be next machine learning? We want those people here. Why send them back to their home countries? We want those industries here. Safi
0: Bakal is the author of Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Safi was just talking about the increasing investment in science and technology by countries like China. Well, we talked recently about China's rise on our show and what they've got in store for us. You can find that conversation on Apple Podcasts or at our website, innovationhub.org.